Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1945, Sam and Anna Mary Schoen set out to make a new life in the new era by moving to a smaller, more affordable city. Discharged from the Navy that summer, Sam tried to rent a trailer to move their possessions from Los Angeles to Portland, Oregon. But nobody would let them have one for a one-way trip. Realising that many more young families would be relocating, the Shones set up a company to fill the gap in the market. They called it U-Haul. The first trailers cost $2 a day to rent, a small price for a better life. Self-drive trucks came in 1959, and their bright orange and white livery is still a feature on America's highways, the utilitarian colour scheme a neat contrast to the romance of a new start. In 2020, Tennessee was the state with the largest net number of incoming U-Hauls. Texas and Florida were close behind. The pandemic has pushed Americans out on the road again. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, could remote working redraw America's political map? Working from home has ended the five-day commute for a cohort of mostly well-off Americans. Last year, house prices rose more steeply than they have in 15 years. People are leaving the great coastal conurbations for smaller, sunnier cities in the South and Mountain West. The property listings firm Zillow calls it the great reshuffling. What are the political implications of this demographic shift? In this episode, we'll take the temperature of the global housing boom, find out how highway construction transformed American politics, and hear how incomers are changing Colorado Springs, one of the winners of the big reshuffle. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are things in New York? Things are looking up. Um, the weather's nice. Vaccinations are rolling out. A few weeks ago, everyone was obsessed with Cuomo, but then he lowered the eligibility age to 16 and announced that pot would become legal. So no one cares anymore. That is a very cunning strategy. And how are you surviving the ketchup <laughs> shortage? I know. I had this boneheaded answer to the quiz last week, but it turns out in America, there is a ketchup shortage, the critical supply chain that has been overlooked. So I'm just that good. Um, John Fasman, how are things going with you? Things are going well. Um, I am going to get vaccinated tomorrow, which I'm very excited about, uh, which I guess means with all three of us vaccinated, Next week's host, whether we like it or not, is going to be Bill Gates speaking through our microchips. <laughs> uh, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to, into Manhattan for the first time in more than a year. Good stuff. And how's the ketchup shortage affected the Fasman family? 
Uh, it has not. We have an ungodly amount of ketchup. It's one of those things where every time I go to the store, I think I probably need to buy some ketchup. As a result, I've got about six bottles. So we're on our way to cornering the market. Well, there are some strange things happening in the ketchup market. And strange things are also happening to the housing market, or at least they have been since the onset of the pandemic a year ago. For this week's finance section in The Economist, our data journalist, James Francham, has been looking at the trends. The housing market really has taken everyone by surprise in many ways over the past year. Basically, there was a race for space. In America, house prices in the year to January are up 11%, and that's their fastest pace for 15 years. In New Zealand, prices are up an astonishing 22%. Um, And across the 25 countries that that we track at The Economist, real house prices have risen by an average of 5% in the latest 12-month period. And that's pretty much the fastest rate in a decade. What is behind all of this? Is it a general asset bubble that's affecting all sorts of different classes of assets? Or or is it something that's more specific to housing, do you think? Yeah, I'd definitely be reluctant to call it a bubble at this stage. We're pretty sanguine about how valuations look. And there are basically three things behind what's pushing prices up. Firstly, interest rates, so easy money, mortgage rates are, are, are low in America and elsewhere in, in the rich world. And then there's there's been obviously fiscal stimulus and, and furlough schemes, but also you've had mortgage forbearance programs. There's been a moratorium on foreclosures in America. And so that's had the effect of reducing the amount of distressed sales that one might normally expect in an economic downturn. The third big factor, John, is there's really been a shift of interest, of demand from cities, from megacities particularly, to less dense places. In the early months of coronavirus, James, in in the Western world, when many cities were locked down, there was a lot of speculation about people leaving cities full stop, moving to suburbs, moving to the countryside. But as you say, it's more complicated than that, isn't there? There's been a shift from first-tier cities that are particularly expensive in America, New York and San Francisco standing out there, to less expensive cities. It's not so much the fact that people are falling out of love with cities altogether in the US. I think this is a really difficult one to answer well, because the data on migration flows at this stage aren't very good. I mean, I can talk firstly about Britain. And so there you've had this kind of confounding effect with Brexit. One estimate, though, reckoned that perhaps London's population might have fallen by 8% over the past year. That would be an astonishing fall, if true. But the effect there might actually be a net effect. So whereas you've had an outflow of individuals who have moved from the city to less dense places to the suburbs or to smaller towns. What you haven't had is is the usual inflow of individuals because borders have been shut or graduates have been reluctant to move to the city because they'll be faced with just working from their bedroom in a shared house. So perhaps there has been an increased outflow of individuals, but you haven't had the usual inflow of individuals to replace them. One study from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland found that migration out of cities in America doubled last year to 56,000 people per month from March onwards compared to the average for the the previous three years. So that definitely is an increased outflow, but it's not the exodus, I think, that people have assumed it might have been. Charlotte, as James pointed out there, what's going on in America at the moment is a really big change. I mean, if you look at 
just the change over the past year, one in three adults in America have swapped some or all of their in-person work for part-time work. I don't think we've ever had such a rapid change in such a short space of time in, in the way people work. And that's obviously having an effect too in where people want to live and they're voting with their feet. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the things that's interesting is that it has accelerated trends that were underway already, right? I mean, the Northeast and the Midwest had been losing population and becoming older. One of the things that is a bit idiosyncratic, though, is the real pace at which millennials have moved. They were the big proportion of people who who switched housing this year. Um, the number of young people, 18 to 29, were living with their parents was more than half, which is the highest share since the Great Depression. And so I'm sure that those people will want to get out from their parents' roofs in, in relatively short order as soon as they can afford it and there are good housing options. But some of the other trends, I think, are more long-lasting. Yeah, and I think one other thing to note with this trend is that there is, as Charlotte pointed out, a secular trend of people moving out of the Northeast and Midwest, right? And we'll probably see that in how congressional seats get reapportioned. I think New York will lose a seat or two. It looks like Rhode Island will have a single at-large representative, I think, for the first time ever. But on top of that, the places that have made the biggest gains, right, are places like you know, where I live, which is Westchester counties, there's counties that are near big cities, right? As people left Manhattan, they moved to to Brooklyn, to Long Island, and to and to close in cities and Jersey's. Most people in San Francisco who left didn't move further than 60 miles away. So there is a sort of long-term repopulation of America southward and westward. But in this particular boom, it seems like people who have been able to get out of cities have just gotten out of out of the big city centers. Is all this movement, is it a good thing? I mean, before COVID-19 hit, obviously COVID-19 is terrible, has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and had awful effects all over the world. But before the virus hit, there was some concern among economists and think tankers that America had lost its mojo when it came to internal migration. Americans seemed too contented living where they were, and that sort of constant internal churn of population that's such a feature of American history had had slowed down. And that was regrettable in, in various ways. I mean, presumably it's a good thing that it's now sped up again. Well, it depends whether you're looking on a local or a national basis, right? So nationally, it doesn't seem like a bad thing. Locally, there are certain places that are really going to struggle if they have a bigger exodus of population, both of businesses workers and residents than they were anticipating. In New York, there's a big discussion about how New York City will be able to adapt to having fewer commuters, which has an impact on city tax revenues. Cuomo, in trying to raise revenue, is raising taxes on the highest income earners, which is not particularly surprising, but it makes New York the highest tax state in the country, more expensive to live in New York City than anywhere in California. And so that, I think, could have a a longer-term impact as well. So I think the answer really depends whether you're looking on a local basis or a bit more broadly. How much do you guys worry about the class divide element here? Because when writing about class in America, we often, in The Economist in the past, have used white-collar and blue-collar as shorthands for different types of work. But both types of work happened in a specified workplace, and people were expected to show up there. 
it feels now like there will be, there is already, in fact, and it may perhaps uh, become you know, even more the case that there is this social divide between jobs like ours that people can do from more or less anywhere, even if actually being in the office is pretty helpful when it comes to creativity and making decisions and all that kind of thing, and work that you have no choice but to show up and, and do it in person. What degree of discomfort do you guys have with that as a, as a development? I wouldn't say it's discomfort, but it is a glaring reality that the pandemic on a number of metrics has played out very differently for people of means versus people who are in the lower income brackets. And that going forward, um, as has always been the case, is that there's less geographic mobility for those who have lower incomes. Um, It's harder for them to move to where opportunities are for a whole host of reasons we can get into. So you can have patterns of migration that amp up for certain types of workers and that don't for lower income workers in, you know, if, if you go to parts of the Rust Belt, this has been a phenomenon for decades where you have the young and talented people moving out of those States. And then the people remain who have mortgages on their homes and for a variety of reasons feel tethered to their communities, they're unable to leave. And so you get into a pretty unfortunate spiral for those cities and, and broad, more broadly those States. And I think that COVID has exacerbated that in some pretty key ways. And I think there's a concern for sort of the quality of city life in places that do well, too. It just seems to me that you don't have the same vibrancy if you have a city like New York or San Francisco, where you have a lot of very wealthy people, and then sort of the service industries that serve them made up of people doing long commutes. You know, we, I don't think white collar and blue collar quite cut it as sort of upper class, middle class. You lose something if you don't have a vibrant middle class in a city. One of the th- interesting things about New York, Bloomberg called it a luxury city at some point, which did not engender a particularly favorable reaction. But the role of young people in cities like that is, is really key. There are a lot of middle class families who move out of cities for quality of life reasons. They need more space. They need more schools. These are, of course, trends that predated covid but you have young people who aren't particularly high income earners, but who just want to be in cities because they're fantastic places to be. And so it will be interesting to see the degree to which that continues. I think that there are going to be a lot of young people who, after having lived with their parents for a year and a half, are thrilled to no longer do so and come back to big cities. But we'll see. I guess on the flip side as well, it lessens this competition that you've had between mayors forever and ever about which mayor is able to land which factory or which company they can get to relocate to to their city, which is really a pretty much a zero-sum competition. I mean, John Fasman, you're just back from St. Louis. If you spend time in St. Louis or Detroit, the mayors there spend a lot of time agonizing about how they can get better quality jobs into those cities so that the graduates might move there and you know increase the city's tax base or so that people might not leave those cities in search of work. And ZoomWorks solves a big part of that problem, doesn't it? Yeah. St. Louis and Detroit, if I were you know young and starting out, those are really attractive places to me because they're vibrant big cities, but the cost of living is low. So you can stay in the city as a family with two parents who are, who are teachers, say, or policemen or firemen in a way that I don't think you could. That similar family would not be able to live in San Francisco, would you know struggle to live in most parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn, I think, would find it hard even in sort of closer in sections of, of Queens or the Bronx. And so those cities that have great housing stock, that have low cost of living, they, they really stand to gain, I think. 
All right, thank you both. We'll look back on the last time there was a big outflow from cities in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, now is a great time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. There's plenty more on the rise of homeworking in this week's issue, including an in-depth special report, a leader on how economic power is shifting towards workers, and a graphic showing what's happening to global house prices. Economist.com slash uspod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. The flight of white residents from America's big cities in the middle of the last century is one of the most striking shifts in a history defined by migrations. Desegregation and rioting fueled racial tension, pushing people who could afford it away. But federal policymaking also lured them out. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels. Government-backed mortgage guarantees had spurred suburbanization since the New Deal. What made a big difference, starting in the mid-1950s, was infrastructure. We have become the nation on wheels, with more motorized mobility than ever dreamed of before. For Dwight Eisenhower, the benefits of a fast road network were obvious from his time as commander of Allied forces in Europe in World War II. His divisions dashed to Berlin on Germany's vast autobahns. By 1954, Eisenhower was president. He asked General Lucius Clay, the D-Day planner, to design a highway system for America. It was a matter of national security. Nuclear conflicts between the United States and the Soviet Union seemed imminent. 70 million urban residents would require evacuation by road in the event of an attack. In a speech warning of atomic war, Vice President Richard Nixon lamented the appalling inadequacies of America's road infrastructure. President Eisenhower signed legislation funding the construction of interstate highways in 1956. By the early 1990s, nearly 45,000 miles had been built. Our road builders now have the know-how to pour miracles of concrete through the air. The highway program would have a striking effect on America's political geography. Clayton Nall, a political scientist at UC Santa Barbara, has shown how their construction helped drive political polarization. The new suburbs had a new politics. Chicago is moving a city to build an eight-mile-long expressway from the city limits to Michigan Avenue. In the late 60s, white Chicagoans, once reliable Democrats, reacted with alarm to Martin Luther King's campaign for desegregated housing. Republican strategists targeted middle-class neighborhoods, and in the 1968 election, their residents joined Richard Nixon's silent majority. These same voters would leave the city for the suburbs, taking their politics with them. Population density is now one of the most reliable indicators of which way an area will vote. Donald Trump was born in Queens and lived in a Manhattan skyscraper, but never campaigned in the big cities. In 2020, voters in the most urbanised counties went for Joe Biden by 29 points, four more than for Hillary Clinton. Spacious roads of divided lanes where free-flowing traffic can save time, tires, gas, as well as lives. 
Another big slice of infrastructure investment is on the way, and who knows what unintended consequences that may have. As a new cohort of wealthy Americans leaves the big cities once again, the Zoom call economy could have the same effect on America's politics in the 2020s as highways did in the 1950s and 60s. Our American dream of Futurama on wheels can come true. John, Joe Biden has a big infrastructure package that he and his administration are eyeing up at the moment. It's interesting to reflect on the history of previous big infrastructure pushes in America, particularly this one of building the federal highways in the post-war period, where, as so often with American history, there was a big racial element when it came to determining where those roads went. Yeah, a number of those highways went right through vibrant African-American communities. And Biden's infrastructure plan actually tries to redress that. It includes money for economic revitalization of neighborhoods that were affected by previous highway constructions. And the White House document mentions a highway in New Orleans that just decimated a thriving African-American community around Claiborne Avenue. But in almost every city, you see the effects of highways on city life. Before we had children, Elise and I lived in Red Hook, Brooklyn, not far from the BQE. And the difference between sort of on one side of the highway, beautiful, charming, brownstone, Brooklyn, Carroll Gardens and Cobble Hill, and the sort of low-slung, largely industrial neighborhood of Red Hook on the other side was extremely stark. And it, it started right at the highway. And so I think Biden is cognizant of the effects on city life that that highway construction has had in the past. So I'm glad to see that in this infrastructure bill, there's not only money for roads, bridges, airports, but there's also money to redress some of the some of the harm that previous building booms have done. Yes, and in many cases, the effect of that road building was quite deliberate, wasn't it? I mean, you think about a city like Chicago, infamous mayor there, Richard Daly, in the late 60s, built a 12-lane highway between the biggest African-American neighborhood and, and the rest of the city that that had the effect of, of walling it in. Montgomery, Alabama, similar things there. Um, Miami, too, in Florida. The other thing that is relevant about the development of highways was the way in which they facilitated suburbanization, which in turn undermined the tax base for center cities and made it harder to make those cities places that could grow and thrive over time. I think with Biden's infrastructure package, there's a lot in there for climate. There is a lot in there for transit as well. And we've been talking about the ability for people to move around to seek opportunities. So in addition to addressing some of the ills of past highway construction, it'll be interesting to see how um, the transit projects that move forward try to um, facilitate economic mobility as well. One of the things that happened over the course of the last 30 and 40 years of the 20th century, though, is that up until the 1960s and 70s, essentially communities became more alike. And then they started to diverge. And depending on where you lived, there was this sorting that went on, as described in this great book by Bill Bishop called The Big Sort. And the way that people lived and the way that people died changed pretty dramatically and got increasingly segmented. So you might get married sooner, you had babies sooner, and in some places you died sooner. And there was this concentration of different people along various indicators, including, most importantly, education, where you had this big sorting of very highly educated people into cities. And in the 1976 election, I remember from the book, 
from Bishop's book, about a quarter of voters lived in counties where one party won by 20 points or more. So this has nothing to do with gerrymandering. It's just county lines. So about a quarter of voters lived in a county where a party won by 20 points or more. By 2008, about half of voters did. So you saw this geographical segmentation that was accompanied by increasing polarization in how people voted. And the really interesting action when Bill Bishop was writing his book over 10 years ago was in the suburbs, because that's where you have the biggest mixing. That's where you have the most dynamic inflows and outflows of population. And that is what I think is most fascinating about what's happened over the past year is whether that big influx that we've seen into the suburbs in various states across the country, as well as the broader migration patterns, you know, out of New York to Tennessee, et cetera, whether that brings a political shift to and how significant that may be. And I think we'll see that if you look at the list of places that have gained most during the pandemic, a number of them are in states and, and, and regions that, that may change politically. Boise, Idaho, three times as many people moved there in 2020 as in past years. Boise, is Idaho is, of course, staunchly conservative, reliably Republican. But if a number of those people were moving from California, a number of those people are sort of millennials with, with the more liberal views that millennials tend to have, you could see in 10 or 20 years a very different looking Idaho. If you want to take a really long view on all of this, I think there are four phases of this urban, suburban shuffle in, in American history. It kind of comes in and goes out a bit like a tide. So you have this very long period of urbanization from basically the pre-independence America right up until the Second World War. And then the part that we've just been talking about, you have the federal highways, you have subsidized mortgages for white people, you have widespread automobile ownership, you have all the conveniences that come with living in the suburbs and cheaper housing. you know. So you have this big move away from cities. And then starting in the 90s, more or less, you have a re-urbanization. Americans rediscover the joys of living more densely and urban cores start to repopulate. And now you have this move back in the other direction. But all of these shifts, to your point, John, and, and to Charlotte's point, all these shifts come with political consequences. We'll be back in a moment to talk some more about that, and in particular, how the latest newcomers are changing the mountain city of Colorado Springs. In Boise, Idaho, which John already mentioned, house prices jumped 28% last year. Colorado Springs is another big winner. Property websites enthuse about the city's dry climate and dressed-down lifestyle. Among the recent migrants to the region is Erin Braun, who's based in Colorado for The Economist. The pandemic has revived the mythology of wide open spaces and socially distant outdoor life in the West. If you're from New Jersey, you think you have died and gone to heaven. When I called John Southers, the mayor of Colorado Springs, he told me that people are still drawn to the city's iconic mountain landscape. My gosh, the mountains are right there. Unlike Denver, you don't have to get out your binoculars to see them. So that's been part of it. Mr. Southers points out that the city's population boom actually predates the pandemic. 
But last year, average home values jumped 15%, thanks partially to a new wave of arrivals. People are kind of revisiting big city life. Let's go someplace where the quality of life is higher. Quite frankly, the social unrest last summer, I think, you know, and I don't, I, don't, I don't have the numbers yet, but I know where people are coming from. I know they're coming from California, from Illinois, places like that. Here, you know, 95% of the people in our city support the police department. It's uh, seen as a well-run city. I think that's all combining to make us uh, a pretty attractive spot. Homebuyers are snapping up property with cash, sometimes sight unseen. Remote workers with a paycheck from a firm in San Francisco can afford to pay more. The growing disconnect between house prices and labor markets is worrying for locals, but so is something else. It's fascinating to me that uh, <laughs> so many of the people who moved to Garo Springs from the coastal areas, I'm, I'm a good Republican, okay, and I, I've talked to mayors and People are leaving California, Illinois, because of the taxation and the regulation, and they move to Colorado, and they say they're coming here to get away from those things, but their politics is such they tend to vote for the same people that produce those kinds of things. It's a little frustrating to those of us who are a little right of center on the political spectrum. For Mr. Southers to admit his city is becoming more liberal as it has grown larger is no small thing. Colorado Springs is a military town and in the past has been a bastion of conservatism. I do definitely think the state is trending blue by who's moving here. I was the uh, honorary chairman for the Romney campaign when we analyzed the vote results in 2012. About 250,000 people had moved Tower Springs and registered as unaffiliates between 2008 and 2012, and they voted uh, Obama 60-40, which gives you an indication of who's moving to Colorado. All this change presents the Mountain West with a paradox. Its cities have to expand to accommodate all the population growth. But by doing that, they may jeopardize the things people move there for. People come to get away from the problems of larger cities, but Colorado Springs is already in America's top 40 and is on track to become bigger yet. Charlotte, if you look at the three states that Americans are leaving in the biggest number, they are New York, Illinois, and California, and all of those are ultra-democratic strongholds. And on the face of it, this doesn't seem like very good news for the Democratic Party. It doesn't seem like a vote of confidence in the way that Democrats run big cities and big states. However, actually for the Democratic Party nationally, it's fantastic news that their voters are being redistributed from places where they win, frankly, without even trying particularly hard, to places that are much more competitive politically. I think that the mayor of Colorado Springs does something that's quite understandable, which is to ascribe the reasons that people are moving to his town as an embrace of uh, not just the beautiful mountain views, but of his management more broadly. And I think that that probably is a bit of a political error. I think when people move, mainly they're thinking about uh, how big the house is that they can buy and whether there are good schools nearby, they're not thinking as much about running away from New York's stance on social issues. 
just because you want a bigger house doesn't mean that you want a transformation in your own um, political ethos or ideology. So it is natural that you that you will see political shifts in this instance. Um, I think the broad dissemination of more left-leaning voters is something that Republicans will have to reckon with. Yeah, I think the other category error that he makes is that people aren't leaving New York and San Francisco because they're dysfunctional cesspits, right? People are leaving them because, if anything, they're too successful and too many people want to live there, and the housing is too expensive for what a lot of people can afford. People aren't escaping the problems of big cities. They're, they are escaping the success of big cities. I think also it's it's a mistake to lump all big cities together. I think that San Francisco has some real quality of life issues that are distinct from those of New York, for instance. I do understand the anxiety about um, uh, there was looting of, in New York last summer, um, and I think that that really rattled some people. But if you walk through New York today, it's not some it's not a city that feels barren and dangerous. There are people walking their dogs and sitting outside at cafes, having a glass of wine. Charlotte, you mentioned that great book, The Big Sort, which Bill Bishop published in 2008. And it's an interesting book. It describes how Democrats and Republicans are increasingly clustering in these like-minded communities. And it's interesting for a bunch of reasons, one of which that's a very similar critique to the critique that's made now of social media and the way that people cluster in like-minded groups and the problems of filter bubbles, et cetera. But it, but it predates, actually, the widespread use of social media. So it suggests there's something about this geographic sorting that changes the way people think politically. And I've always wondered about that thesis, which way the causation runs. You know, does moving to New York make you a Democrat or do Democrats move to New York, if that makes sense? And this Colorado Springs example kind of argues uh, that the causation is it's pretty clear. It's that you have a, a load of Democrats who are clustered in places like California and Illinois and New York, and they then move, taking their politics with them. It's not that there's you know, something in the air in cities that turns everybody who lives in them into a Democrat. One of the things that's clearly become evident is that states are likely to pass policies that are more aggressive than those passed on the national level. So you see states, whether it's action on climate change with um, states like New York and California passing pretty bold targets with regulatory mechanisms to enforce them to limit emissions, or whether it's a conservative state that wants to take action on transgender health care. You see state policies being much more um, bold that than those that you see on the national level. And again, some of the migration patterns that you have seen over the past year, it's not clear yet that they're out of a scale that that would begin to change. So if you have a state that goes from being strongly blue to more purple, or you have, in this instance, what seems more likely states that were red becoming more purple over time, what that does to state policies. So John, how big a political effect do you think we're talking here? I think there are two factors that will determine that. Number one is just the sheer numbers factor, right? If we see seats in Congress lost in, you know, New York, Illinois, Rhode Island, I would imagine Pennsylvania and Ohio are going to lose a couple too. These are traditionally Democratic states, and those states, those seats get redistributed to, you know, Texas, Florida, Arizona, states that have a Republican governor and a Republican legislature, and they're the ones drawing the seats. 
I think it's reasonable to assume that you will see a more Republican tilt in the House of Representatives for the next 10 years, right? They will do everything they can in the southern states, as Democrats would if if the populations were inverted to ensure their own political power. I think the more interesting question, though, is what we were just talking about in Colorado Springs, which is how will the politics of newcomers be changed by their environment. And I think it's much too easy to say, you know, if you're a 26-year-old millennial from moving from New York or San Francisco to Colorado, that you're going to be a Democrat for life, regardless of what the two parties do. If if you think about the demise of Western republicanism, right, the sort of Ronald Reagan-style libertarian-infected republicanism into something much more socially conservative and far more influenced by the South, I think it's inevitable that you will see political parties respond in that sort of way. And so the question of what will the effect be on politics isn't an easy answer. It isn't as easy as saying, you know, Democrats are moving from here to here, therefore these places will get more democratic. You'll see the changes play out over a very long period of time in a number of different ways that affect each other. I think you see some manifestations of that change happening underway in Georgia right now, which is a state that has changed a lot politically and demographically in recent decades, is in the midst of a big fight over voting laws, and um, which in turn affects um, voter turnout. And it would seem like these are different issues, but I think actually they are tied up in one, which is a question of who controls given states' center of political gravity and when that begins to shift the unexpected ways in which different constituencies respond in an attempt to hold on to power. Well, talking of attempts to hold on to power, John Fasman, it's quiz time. The Economist first visited Colorado Springs in 1987 to report on President Reagan's strategic defense initiative. The city's home to Space Command, and our correspondent visited the vanguard of a planned corps of 2,000 star warriors. The city had already experienced a boom on the back of lavish space shuttle contracts handed out to local tech companies. Name the five shuttles. Columbia, Challenger, and then I'm lost. Yeah, I don't know. John, you get two-fifths of a point. Columbia, Challenger, three others were Endeavor. Wait, hold on. I'll just start naming random nouns. Yeah, Endeavor (laughs) is good. Exactly. That's a good approach. Explorer. um, So close. Intrepid. Uh, if they ever restart the shuttle program, Charlotte, you should be given <laughs> the job of renaming them because they, those are not in fact correct, but they're, they're close enough. Um, the others were Endeavour, Discovery, and Atlantis, which is mm, a bit of a departure. Course, Atlantis. Atlantis's last flight was in 2011. Over 30 years of service, the shuttles carried 355 astronauts from 16 countries. 14 died when first Challenger and then Columbia exploded. Colorado Springs is also home to the U.S. Air Force Academy, but it's not the university to have produced the most American astronauts. Which school has that honor? Um, University of Florida. Uh, Caltech. It is. You'll kick yourselves when when I say this. It's the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis in Maryland. The Naval Academy has produced 54 astronauts, including Alan Shepard, the first American and second man in space, Only 41 astronauts have been graduates of the Air Force Academy. But that's one quarter of all astronauts who have come from either the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy. That's Yeah, that's good going, right? Yeah. Right, because it's all the pilots. That makes sense. I was trying to go for geographic proximity to big bases, but that was clearly a mistake. Oh, so there was method to your Florida guess. 
I'm, it seems like I'm just reaching randomly, but that one had a tiny bit of method. Okay. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nico Rofas for producing the podcast. If you like it, then please let people know by leaving a rating and a review. There's much more on the future of work in our Money Talks podcast this week, featuring the MIT economist David Orter. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.